evidence and answers. One of the most respected Near Eastern archaeologists, Israel Finkelstein, states the combination of archaeology and historical research demonstrates that the biblical account of the conquest and occupation of Canaan by the Israelites is entirely divorced from historical reality. Most archaeologists would agree with Dr. Finkelstein. Can we build a case for the Exodus? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today on Evidence and Answers, Pat will reveal the latest discoveries that bring new evidence and insights into this major biblical narrative. Continuing on with his message, Examining the Exodus, is our host, Pat Zucran. We have been studying the Exodus and we're building our case for the Exodus. And as we studied in the previous show, we need to start not only with the correct method, but the correct date as well. And there are three dates given for the Exodus. The early date of 1446 B.C., held by most conservative scholars. The late date of 1260 B.C., held by most Bible scholars. And the middle date of 1406 B.C., which is the one I hold. If you hold to the 1406 B.C. date, I think the evidence comes together nicely. Now, in a previous show, I presented the biblical case for 1406 B.C. So I think we've got a good biblical argument that indeed the Exodus occurs about 1406 B.C. If you go with that date, I think you've got some pretty compelling archaeological discoveries that support the case for the Exodus. So if we take the date of the Exodus, about 1406 B.C., remember, when the Bible gives dates, often you can give or take a few years, all right? There are approximations. But if we take this date, I believe there's a good amount of archaeological evidence that builds a strong case for the Exodus. Now, remember, we should not expect to find the Exodus recorded in Egyptian documents because Egyptians would not record such a humiliating defeat to a nation of slaves. And there are several other reasons for this. The Egyptians recorded events with the intention to present an idealized history of the Pharaoh. Remember, they believed that the Pharaoh was a god. Therefore, they did not record anything negative. A lot of their history is indeed political propaganda here. Second, they wanted to portray their Pharaoh as a godlike figure, so defeat would humanize their king. And they didn't want that. Third, Recording defeats would invite division and rebellion in their empire. City-states and other nations that they ruled over, if they knew that Egypt was in trouble, it would be an invitation to rebel and separate from that nation of Egypt or even invade the land of Egypt. Therefore, there may not be direct references, but we should look for clues from the Egyptian records and history that connect with events described in the Exodus account. Now, remember the events of the Exodus, 10 plagues which ravaged and ruined the land of Egypt, the loss of all the firstborn Egyptian males in the land, the loss of Pharaoh's army in the Sea of Reeds, the death of Pharaoh with his army. Now, some of you might be saying, whoa, wait a minute, where does it say in the text that Pharaoh died with his army? I think we can get that from the biblical text. Exodus 14:28 says that the Red Sea, the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. 
So it seems like Pharaoh led his army against the nation of Israel and died there in the Red Sea. And Psalm 136.15 states, And Psalm 136 states, To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. So I think from those passages, we can see that Pharaoh died with his army there in the Red Sea. Then we have the plundering of the Egyptian wealth by the Israelites upon their departure. And then we have that sudden loss of a mass group of slave labor. So think about it now. We need to ask the right questions here when doing our archaeological investigation here. What effect would calamities like these have on the nation of Egypt? Well, catastrophes like these and those mentioned in the Exodus would ruin the Egyptian empire. In fact, that's what it stated in Exodus 10:7. The advisors of Pharaoh say that the land is ruined. So we then must ask, is there a dynasty of Egypt that suddenly collapsed? We must also look at the surrounding world powers and see if they were aware of a sudden weakening of the Egyptian empire. So in summary, here's what we're looking for in the archaeology. First, are there any historical documents in the Egyptian records that could be connected with the Exodus event? Remember, the Egyptians would not mention a defeat to Israel directly, but they may have recorded activities related to or aftermaths of devastations from the Exodus. Second, we are looking for the sudden collapse of an Egyptian dynasty that would have resulted from the catastrophes of the Exodus. Third, we're looking for historical records from the surrounding nations to see if they perceived or took advantage of the collapse of the Egyptian empire. Now, if we take the early date of the Exodus, 1446 BC, the ruler of the Egyptian empire would be Tutmosis III, who ruled from 1497 to about 1443 BC. Or it would be Amenhotep II, who ruled from 1443 to 1417 BC. The problem is that there's no sudden collapse of the empire under these pharaohs. In fact, both men ruled during the height of the Egyptian empire. It's at this time, Egypt controls the territories from the Nile and all of Canaan, all the way up to the Euphrates River. In fact, both Tutmosis III and Amenhotep II are victorious in many battles, suppressing uprisings in Canaan. Now, the late date of the 13th century BC, somewhere around 1260 BC, states that Ramses II, who ruled from 1279 to about 1212 BC, is the pharaoh of the Exodus. But his reign and empire never suffers any kind of power loss. No other world power, the Hittites, the empire of Mitanni, the Canaanites, or other Near Eastern powers sense a decline of power in Egypt during the 13th century BC, during the reign of Ramses II. Well, is there a dynasty that suffers a sudden collapse? The answer is no for the early date of the Exodus and the late date of the Exodus. However, when you look at the period around the middle date, 1406 BC, you have a very interesting series of circumstances. Now, remember, the 18th dynasty is established by Amos, who expels the Hyksos kings and reunites Egyptian power in about 1550 BC. 
the empire grows in power as the succeeding pharaohs of the dynasty defeat the city-states of the Levant, expanding Egypt's control over the area. Tutmosis III, ruling from 1497 to 1443 BC, is considered the greatest and most powerful pharaoh of Egypt. Under his rule, the Egyptian empire attains its largest expanse ever. He conquers the Levant and extends Egypt's border from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates River. His son Amenhotep II, ruling from 1443 to 1417 BC, continues the control over this territory, crushing rebellions in Canaan and in Syria. Now, Tuthmosis IV, and remember this name now, Tuthmosis IV, he ascends to the throne of Egypt in 1417 BC when it is at its height. And he had established himself as a mighty warrior and commander by the age of 20. Suddenly now, in 1406 BC, my proposed date of the Exodus, in 1406 BC, he suddenly dies a strange and sudden death. And the 18th dynasty, the mightiest dynasty of the Egyptian empire, collapses rapidly soon after his death. Exodus 14.28 and Psalm 136 indicate that the Pharaoh died with his army in the Red Sea. And Tutmosis IV died at a very young age. We have discovered his mummy. And his mummy reveals that he was a healthy and handsome young man when he died. There is also no indication of any wounds or sickness. He just suddenly died at the prime of his life. Well, death by drowning would be a very viable explanation for his death. Now, you may be asking, how in the world did the Egyptians get the body of their pharaoh if he drowned in the Red Sea? Well, if you remember the Exodus account, it says, you know, when the water settled, the bodies and chariots and horses uh, of the Egyptian army lay there on the shore. And so the Egyptians, probably looking through the bodies, found the chariot and body of their pharaoh and brought it back to the land of Egypt to be buried. Now, after the death of Tutmosis IV, the Egyptian empire suddenly just unravels. Here's a brief overview of its sudden and very quick decline. After the death of Tutmosis IV, who I'm saying is the pharaoh of the Exodus, he is succeeded by Amenhotep III. Now, Amenhotep III suddenly withdraws from the Levant, from the land of Canaan and Syria, which was under Egyptian control. He withdraws and Egypt loses control over the territory they once ruled. We know this because nations now begin to battle over the territory and the city-states rebel without any response from Egypt. The three pharaohs before regularly went into the Levant to suppress these kinds of rebellions, but this time they rebel with no response from Egypt. And we know from Egyptian records... I'll mention one later, that plagues are still ravaging the land of Egypt. It took a while for them to recover from the plagues. So Amenhotep III follows Tutmosis IV. Amenhotep IV succeeds Amenhotep III. And Egypt continues to unravel and go into massive decline. The land of Canaan disintegrates into chaos and the kings of the land even call upon Egypt for help. But Egypt remains silent. Remember, Egypt controlled the land of Canaan and the city-states were pretty much at peace because 
They knew any kind of rebellion or war with one another would invite the wrath of Egypt. But suddenly now the land goes into chaos and Egypt doesn't respond. Then the empire of Hatti or the Hittites there in southern Turkey, sensing Egypt's weakness, attacks the nation of Mitanni, which was the nation east of the Euphrates River. And the empire of Mitanni had a strong alliance with Egypt. But Hatti, wanting that territory, seizes the territory of northern Canaan and takes it from the empire of Mitanni. And despite Mitanni's pleas for help, Egypt is helpless to come to the aid of their ally. Interestingly as well, Amenhotep IV, the pharaoh of Egypt at this time, suddenly changes his name to Akhenaten. He then strangely abandons the gods of Egypt and orders the nation to worship one god. The god he chose is the sun god Aten, but he suddenly goes to this quasi-form of monotheism and orders Egypt to worship only one god. So he adopts a quasi-form of monotheism. Now, no one knows the reason he did this, but perhaps he saw or heard of the impotence of the Egyptian gods against the God of Israel. He goes on and he forbids the worship of the traditional gods of Egypt and even destroys their temples. For this reason, he is despised by the Egyptians and is known as the heretic king. Now, following Akhenaten is Smenkare, who rules from 1350 to 1349 BC, and then the famous king Tutankhamen, or King Tut, rules from about 1349 to 1340 BC. Very short rules of these kings. Together, both kings rule for only a decade. Now, this is very interesting here what happens. King Tut's widow, Aksunamun, realizes the desperate situation that Egypt is in. And in a bizarre move, she begs Egypt's enemy, the Hittite king Supiluliuma, say that name ten times, Supiluliuma, and requests him to send one of his sons to marry her. In other words, Aksunamun was handing over Egypt to the Hittites. Absolutely stunned by the offer, Supiluliuma sends an envoy to Egypt to make sure this is not a trick. And after confirming the offer, he sends his son Zidanza to marry the Egyptian queen. However, one of the Egyptian generals, Horemheb, assassinates the Hittite prince and takes over the throne of Egypt. And this brings an end to the once mighty 18th dynasty. Now, the collapse of Egypt's 18th dynasty is sudden and it is devastating. Egypt overnight goes from the world's superpower to a nation in so much trouble that the queen is willing to hand it over to an enemy empire. Now, you need to ask yourself, what is the cause of this sudden collapse? Well, the events of the Exodus are a reasonable cause for the fall of the Egyptian empire. So when you look at the biblical text and the archaeological data now, the pieces of the puzzle begin to fit. Let's take a look some more at the sudden fall of the Egyptian empire. How do we know it suffered such a tremendous collapse? Well, we have a archaeological discovery called the Amarna tablets that we're going to look at here. Now remember, the Egyptian empire rose to its greatest height under Tutmosis IV, the great warrior king. However, he suddenly dies in the prime of his life and the empire suddenly collapses. The collapse of Egypt 
coincides with the dates of the Exodus. Now, how do we know the Egyptian Empire quickly collapsed since Egypt would never record such a humiliating defeat to a slave nation? We need to look not only at clues in Egypt, but from the surrounding nations. Now, during the 18th dynasty, remember, Egypt rules from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates. They rule over the Levant. The pharaohs have military outposts throughout the land of the Levant, throughout Canaan and Syria and parts of Jordan. And they regularly had military campaigns in the area to squelch any rebellion, capture slaves, and expand their territory. However, after the death of Tutmosis IV, they suddenly lose control of the Levant. Now, this coincides with the Israelite conquest of Canaan. What's significant to note is that Joshua never encounters the Egyptians when he invades Canaan. This is really significant because, remember, Canaan was Egyptian territory. Why was there no Egyptian presence during Joshua's invasion? Well, as we studied earlier, the Egyptian empire was in a free fall and they had pulled out of Canaan. And this was an opportune time then for the Israelites to come in and take the land. Now, one of the most important historical documents that tell us what occurred in this period are the Amarna Tablets. The Amarna tablets were discovered in 1887 among the ruins of Akhenaten's palace at a site known as El Amarna, 200 miles south of Cairo. Over 300 cuneiform tablets were found. Now, these tablets are correspondence letters between the Canaanite kings and Egypt during the last 10 years of Amenhotep III's reign and the 12 years of Akhenaten's reign. Remember, these are the two pharaohs that followed Tutmosis IV, who I'm proposing here as the pharaoh of the Exodus, who died there in the Red Sea. Now, some of the letters have the regnal year of the pharaoh. So this tells us when the texts were written and received. Now, in these letters, we find something very interesting. We find the kings of Canaan pleading with Pharaoh Amenhotep III and Akhenaten to send military aid to the land because it is falling into a state of turmoil. In fact, the king state a group of nomads they call the Habiru are now overtaking the city-states of Canaan. They send numerous letters pleading for help and asking why the Pharaoh does not even respond to their pleas for help. An example is a letter from Abdi Hiba, the ruler of Jerusalem, who was concerned about a bunch of marauding nomads known as the Habiru. Now, Abdi Hiba affirms his loyalty to the Pharaoh and pleads for help. This is what he writes. He writes this, At the feet of the king, my lord, seven times and seven times I prostrate myself. All the territories of the king have rebelled. May the king take care of this land. If there are archers here this year, all the territories of the king will remain intact. But if there are no archers, the territories of the king, my lord, will be lost. The invading force in Canaan are identified as the Habiru. Now, the term Habiru means marauding nomads. And this term generally refers to a group of invading nomads. But in the Amarna tablets, this is apparently a very large army here. And remember, after 40 years of desert wandering, this would be the time the Hebrews would be invading the land. And many scholars see a connection between the designation of Habiru and 
Hebrew there. Now, another significant highlight in the Amarna letters is that several letters are written by the Canaanite city kings against the king of Shechem, whose name is Labayu. Now, the Canaanite kings protest that Labayu has aligned himself with this invading groups of the Habiru, who have set up their headquarters around the city of Shechem. And the kings further warn that if Egypt doesn't come, Labayu will take more land, including Jerusalem. Now, the name Labayu means Lion of Yahweh. In the book of Genesis, the patriarchs settled in Shechem for significant periods of time. In fact, Jacob's land was originally in Shechem, and that is where he bought the burial land for his family. In Joshua 24:32, they go and bury the bones of Jacob there. Therefore, Labayu may have been a worshiper of Yahweh, the God of Israel, and his alliance with Israel would fit in this context. Now, in the Bible, Joshua takes Jericho, then he takes Ai, and then takes the city of Bethel. Joshua sets up his base camp between Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal there in Joshua chapter 8, and the city of Shechem rests between these two mountains. Joshua marches people to Shechem, and interestingly, does not attack Shechem, nor does he attack Beth Haven, because that is Shechem's territory. Now, the Amarna tablets affirm the fall of the Egyptian empire, which we can reasonably conclude resulted from the catastrophes of the Exodus. And the Amarna tablets affirm the conquest narrative of Joshua as well. So when you have the right date, the archaeological data and the biblical texts come together nicely. Now, once again, I went through a lot of facts and you listening on the radio, and I don't, I don't expect you to memorize them, but I encourage you to go to our website at evidenceandanswers.org, evidenceandanswers.org, and read my article on the Exodus Examined, or you can re-listen to the show at your pace and soak in all the facts that I am stating. Now, the fall of the sudden collapse of Egypt, which is what we would expect is also further confirmed in the fall of the Mitanni Empire. So let's take a look at that. And as we study the Exodus, remember, we're looking for what we call historical synchronisms or historical events that correspond to the events of the Exodus. Remember, the Egyptians would not record their defeat to the nation of Israel, for it was humiliating to the nation. The Pharaoh needed to be portrayed as an invincible god, and news of a defeat would alert surrounding nations of Egypt's sudden vulnerability. Therefore, we need to look for clues from the surrounding nations. Now, Egypt's height of power occurs during the 18th dynasty, between 1550 and 1290 BC. Under Tutmosis IV, the empire is at the pinnacle of her power. Egypt controls the territories from the Nile all the way to the Euphrates River. Suddenly, Tutmosis IV dies and Egypt's empire suddenly collapses. And remember, Tutmosis IV is the one I propose is the pharaoh of Egypt. Egypt loses control of the Levant and withdraws from Canaan. And as Canaan falls into disarray, the kings of Canaan in the Amarna letters plead for help from Egypt, but Egypt is unable to respond. The death of Tutmosis IV and the collapse of Egypt coincide with the date of the Exodus, if you take the 1406 BC date of the Exodus. 
Now, the evidence for the collapse of Egypt's empire is further confirmed by the fall of her ally nation of Mitanni. Now, the Mitanni kingdom flourished from 1500 to 1340 BC. This empire covered the area of modern-day southeastern Turkey, northern Syria, and northern Iraq. The other empire that loomed to the north was the empire of Hatti, or the Hittites. They occupied the territory of eastern Turkey. Both empires of Hatti and Mitanni wanted access then to the ocean. They wanted access to the Mediterranean, which they both didn't have. To gain access to the Mediterranean, they would have to go through the Levant Corridor, which was controlled by Egypt. This corridor there is in northern Canaan, okay, which gives them access to the Mediterranean. The Egyptian controlled that corridor, and the Egyptian pharaohs often battled with Hatti and Mitanni to keep control of this Levant Corridor. run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold an apologetics conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcast like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org, and you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find we have a wide variety of resources available to you, so be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucarat. 